that you open your Bibles tonight to the book of Nahum once again. Nahum chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 15 tonight. The last time I preached, we, look at, we looked at the first eight verses of this little uh, prophetic book. And as you're turning there, just to do a little re- review to give you a chance to get there, um, we, we, we saw in the first eight verses of, of the book of the prophet Nahum uh, that it is a prophecy against Nineveh, much like the book of Jonah. Uh, it's the sequel to the book of Jonah. Uh, he came with a message, this prophecy, uh, prophesying the coming destruction of Nineveh. They had returned to their sins that they'd repented of. This was about 130 to 150 years after Jonah, roughly somewhere in that area. And unlike in the time of Jonah, this time they will not repent. They will not turn to God. And yet we see in all of this that God is good. God is declared good in verse 7. His judgments are right. They're righteous. And He is a stronghold for those who trust in Him. And before we begin reading in verse 9, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask You tonight to bless the reading of Your Word. We know You've already blessed Your Word, but Lord, use it to touch our hearts and minds. And uh, Lord, just to help me, Your unworthy servant, as I read and proclaim it tonight. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 9, we read, What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quite and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now I will break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tithings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. In 490 B.C., the Persian Empire invaded Greece and was seeking to conquer Greece. 
And they met the Athenian army at a place called Marathon. And there the Athens defeated the Persian army. And the Persians were forced to retreat out of Greece. And a messenger from the Athenian army ran from Marathon 26 miles back to Athens to tell the good news of the victory. And according to this story, as he gave this gave the news to Athens that they had that the, the, the Persians had been defeated, that he died. Now that's where we get the idea of a marathon, you know, running 26 miles. Uh, and but it was at this battle that they sent this runner, and this was uh, tonight. I want to look at another runner that's described very similar, by the way. We'll see as the one that's described in history in that battle between Athens and Persia. And entitled the message tonight, The Gospel Runner, based upon verse 15. Because here in verse 15, and we're going to look at the other verses too, but this is going to be the key verse. In verse 15, uh, Nahum says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tithings that publishes peace. He uses imagery here that was what more well known in ancient times than it is to us. It may seem a little foreign to us, but it's really the same imagery that we see at Marathon that I described earlier, that it was common for them to pass off to communicate through runners, sending a runner. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have have you know, the internet. And that's how they communicated. Uh, a good example of this is, and I'm not going to go there because uh, I know Brother Gary will be looking at this probably in a few months in Second Samuel chapter 18 when Joab defeated Absalom's army and he was gonna, there was going to be two runners sent. Well, actually it was going to be one, but it was two of them ran back to David, back to David's fortress to tell him that he was victorious, Ahamaz and Cushai. And they brought King David news of his victory over Absalom and also of Absalom's death. Uh, in Isaiah 52, Isaiah chapter 52 we see some of the same imagery used here as we see in Nahum 52 and verse 7 where Isaiah wrote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tithings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tithings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now Isaiah used this describing the end of the Babylonian captivity, the restoration of Jerusalem. Uh, this was good news that was brought, that he's showing being brought. Nahum's imagery is of a runner bringing good news of the fall of Nineveh. That Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire that had oppressed Judah for so many years is over. That it's over with. 
Go back to Nahum again in chapter 1 and verse 9 where the prophet says, What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction will make an will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Uh, he, he's, and he, he just says, why do you imagine against the Lord? Why do you imagine evil against the Lord? It reminds me of a little bit of Psalm 2 where it says, why do the heathen rage and imagine the vain thing? Raging against the Lord. We're going to break His bonds asunder. These chains, we're going to break them asunder. Nahum says this is, this is how the king of Assyria and the Assyrians and Nineveh, they imagine evil against the Lord. He's making it clear that Assyria plotted not just against Judah, but that he was plotting, that they were plotting against God Himself. He even compares them in verse 10 uh, that you're like folding up together as thorns. You're like a big stack of thorns. Dry thorns. You're like drunken as drunkards. You're like an army of drunkards. Now what? When you think of a stack of thorns, they're gonna, if you put a fire to them, they're going to light up, aren't they? And can a, what about an army of drunkards walking around? Not going to do very good. They're helpless is what it's showing. And, and he says, you're going to be devoured as stubble, fully dry. Judgment's waiting for you, Nineveh. They are helpless in opposing God and shall be devoured. In verse 11, he, he says, there is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And this I believe is referring to the entire Assyrian royalty. They had been an enemy of Judah, of Israel. They had carried the northern kingdom of Israel off into captivity. All that was left was Judah. That's all. And they were constantly trying to uh, conquer them. The most famous invasion occurred in 2 Kings chapter 18 during the reign of Hezekiah, when they came right up against the walls of Jerusalem, it seemed like it was over with. If you look at it from a human standpoint, you go to 2 Kings 18. I just want to look at two verses there in 2 Kings chapter 18. And I want you to see the blasphemous words that the Assyrians said against not just Judah, but against God Himself. And look, God takes serious these things. You know, people use the Lord's name in vain all the time. But, and we think that, well, God's kind of lighting up about that stuff today. That's what you think. Now, the Bible stay, says the same. But this messenger told the people of Jerusalem these words in verse 22. But if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah had taken away? Hezekiah had removed those false altars. says, hey, uh, that's where he's removed those altars. Hezekiah had taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. 
He only wants you to worship in Jerusalem. And then go to verse uh, 30. Go to verse 30. It says, Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered in the hand of the king of Assyria. Now look, I could go. Well, there's a lot we could read here, but that's just a taste of it. He says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you by telling you to trust in the Lord or trust in Yahweh, saying the Lord's going to deliver us. It's not going to happen. Jerusalem will not be delivered. And if you know the, if you if you read the whole story of eight, eight chapters eighteen and nineteen are here, eighteen and nineteen in Second Kings. You know that Hezekiah immediately went to the Lord in prayer. And God answered him. And in verse 35 of chapter 19, a miracle occurred. It states, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. God turned back the army of Assyria, wiping out 185,000 of them. What I'm trying to show you here is Assyria was a blasphemous, idolatrous nation. They mocked the Lord. God sent them back. Uh, and, uh, and going back to Nahum, it's, it's, it says in verse 12 that though they be quite likewise, yet thus shall they be cut down. Excuse me. Though they be quite and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down. Though there are many, Assyria had a, was the superpower of its day. Huge armies. Though they be many, they're going to be cut down. When Nahum was making this prophecy, Assyria was at the height of its power, at the zenith of its power. People couldn't imagine it falling. And sometimes I think folks today, us here in the United States, we got to be careful. We think, hey, we're, we're, nothing can touch us. Our, you know, we're invincible. Believe me, God could bring us down. We we got to always be humble, folks. I don't ever think that. That's pride. He says, Judah, they will afflict thee no more at the end of verse 12. And then verse 13, he says, For I'm going to break their yoke from off thee. Their will, I will burst their bonds in sunder. And then in verse 14, he speaks of the end of Assyria's idolatry. This, this empire, this people that had so many idols that they worshipped that were affront to Almighty God. He says that's going to come to an end. And that brings us to verse 15, which we've been looking at, where he says, Behold upon the mountains. This is, he's bringing you this message. This is a message of the end of Nineveh. The end of Assyria's tyranny. No longer will they be a threat to Judah, for God is bringing them down. You might say, how does this all apply to us today? Well, there, there's, another gospel, there's another writer in the Bible that also uses this same imagery of a runner, and it's found in the New Testament in Romans chapter 10. 
Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 where the Apostle Paul states, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Paul uses the imagery that Nahum and Isaiah uses. Nahum's good news was the end of the Assyrian Empire that had been an enemy of Judah. Uh, Isaiah's was that of the end of Babylonian captivity. Paul's is even greater. He's using imagery of someone sharing the gospel, declaring deliverance from sin, death, and hell through Jesus Christ. When I read that in Nahum verse 15 where it, where it states, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that published good tithings, that publishes peace, I couldn't help but think of the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2 and, and verse 8. Uh, where... Luke, a scripture reading that we often associate with the Christmas story, but really we can read this all year long, of course. It says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tithings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now that's, that's good news. That's real good news for a, for a, a lost world describing the, the, the resurrection, our own resurrection, and tying it in with Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, I know you're familiar with these, these verses of Scripture. He says, So when this corruptible shall put on incorruptible, incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, I, there's a, a sermon, a famous sermon preached many centuries ago, back in the fourth century. That's what, almost 1700 years ago, I think, by John Christosom. Uh, uh, his uh, sermon on Easter Sunday it was. And near the end of that sermon, he paraphrases this. He says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are abolished. Christ is risen and the demons are cast down. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. There's an old church hymn that I grew up singing. Probably some of you grew up singing it. Victory in Jesus. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. 
He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing blood. That's good news. That's good news for this lost and fallen world. It's greater news than, than that that Nahum had. It's greater news than that that Isaiah had for Jerusalem, my friends. It's victory in Christ. There is victory in Christ. And there's hope beyond the grave. For Christ died on the cross for sinners and has risen from the dead. People need that message today. Now going back to Nahum, the second part of verse 15, he, he tells them, O Judah, keep thy solemn feast. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Uh, because Nineveh and her empire will fall, the prophet calls on Judah to keep the feast. Perform their vows. Now, if you study the Old Testament, you know that Judah, Israel, had numerous feasts that they kept. You read in the Old Testament law. And the most famous being Passover. Now, it's possible, and I've heard it said that it's possible that they may have stopped celebrating these feasts out of fear of Assyria, that they had been negligent. And that's what he's telling them. Don't do it. Perform your feast. Perform Passover. Celebrate them. And keep your vows to Almighty God. Have faith in God. And celebrate your deliverance from Egypt through the Passover and all the other feasts which all were celebrations of God's grace. Guess who else is supposed to keep the feast? Us, but not, those, not, not the Old Testament feast. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 6 through 8, he says, Your glorying is not good, speaking to the Corinthians who had numerous problems, that church did. Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, leaven a, a symbol of sin, sin within the church? Verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul calls for church of Corinth and he calls for us as believers to purge ourselves of sin. Uh, many believe this is tied in with a Passover custom when they would have the Passover where they would before they would uh, celebrate the Passover they'd clean their houses of any leaven within it. Paul's saying get the leaven out of your life. Because sin in our life will hinder our relationship with Christ. And he says, celebrate the feast. But he's talking about celebrating the feast of Christ's death and resurrection, of eternal life in Him. Look, it's not something we just do on Sunday. 
it's not something we do just when we're you know when we're taking the Lord's Supper or, or during certain times of the year we're to do this every day my friends celebrate the feast remembering who we are in Christ in first Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 5 <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, the Apostle Peter reminds us as believers <clears throat> Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. In this New Testament time, we don't offer up animal sacrifices because Christ fulfilled that by His once and for all sacrifice at the cross. We offer up spiritual sacrifices, my friends, daily. We keep the feast to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To show love to others. Uh, that's what matters. I ask you, my friends, a hundred years from now, what will people think of you? The thing is, they probably won't. <laughs> they won't remember any of us. Uh, there, uh, there's a, many years ago, I say many years ago, 1995, it's, uh, I was highly involved in the Sons of Confederate Veterans, a Southern uh, Heritage uh, group and I was doing some research on uh, my great, great, great grandfather. And I found out he had been a captain and a lieutenant colonel in the 7th Louisiana uh, Regiment, member of uh, the Louisiana Tiger Brigade that fought in the, in the Nor Army of Northern Virginia with Robert E. Lee. Did a lot of research, found out a lot of the battles he was in, being wounded. Uh, he later in 1877, after the war, became mayor of Ponchatoula. And uh, it was just amazing and what I discovered. And later was a full colonel in the United States National Guard. And he, he built a, had an antebellum home up in the northern part of uh, Tangibahoe Parish that my father and my uncle Rufus uh, told me that they remember as little kids visiting that burnt down in around 1948. They didn't really know no, nothing about him. They just knew about that home. And he died in uh, 1895, I believe, almost 130-something years ago of probably pneumonia. I read a New Orleans Picayune uh, newspaper article. And I found where his grave was at, his right in Ponchatoula, in a family graveyard. And a friend of mine who was also involved in this, we went to the graveyard, and there were all these, you know, like a regular graveyard, you know, all these, you know, um, uh, headstones, and we were looking for it, and there we saw it. All tangled up his vines all over it. He had to tear off the vines. We could see his name, Thomas M. Terry, had to get some bleach and get it off. And after we put the bleach and all this on, it was, it was like a beautiful headstone, just beautiful. 
headstone. And it was just amazing to me. But here's the thing about it. This was like a hundred years after his death. And probably the most famous member of my family. And within a hundred years, everybody forgot about him. That just shows you, my friends, we spend so much time wanting to do things here on earth and thinking about our accomplishments. All his accomplishments within a hundred years had been forgotten by his own family. His own grave was just a tangled... It was, it was just tangled, hadn't been kept up. People forgot about him over the years. Forgotten. But I tell you this, my friends, what we do for God is not forgotten. To love our neighbor. To pray for them. To share the gospel. To help others. To keep the feast. To remember Christ and Him crucified at all times. Uh, there's a, a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. It says, Almighty God, by the Passover of Your Son, You have brought us out of sin into righteousness and out of death into life. Grant to those that are sealed by the Holy Spirit the will and power to proclaim to all the world through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called to keep the feast. Even in this time when the enemy is, is attacking us, when there's evil, we got to remember just as Assyria was about to go down, this world's already been defeated. Satan's been defeated at the cross in the empty tomb. The final part of verse 15 in Nahum is the wicked no more shall pass through it. He is utterly cut off. The end has come for the wicked. No more will they rise again in Assyria is what Nahum is saying. Uh, in Matthew 7, and I'm going to close with this, Jesus talks about two people. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these words of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which buildeth his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a foolish man or doeth them not, excuse me, shall be likened likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was, its, was the fall of it. Jesus is describing two people. Is our house built upon the rock of Jesus? Eternal things. This world and all that's in it will pass away. Many, and I would say most, are building upon the sand. They're like Nineveh. They're like Assyria. Oh, they're great in power. Mighty. But God says, I can bring it down just like that. You're like, you're like uh, thorns ready to be burned up. You're like a drunken army. But those who trust in Him will endure forever for they're upon the rock. 
Let us remember that in this time when it seems like evil is winning, that everything's bad. No, my friends, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, oh, I, we have, you are building upon the rock. You've built upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know that this world is perishing, is fading away. And we, Lord, face our own Ninevehs that threaten us and, uh, and they, it seems overwhelming. Lord, if our trust is in you, we know that we're, our house is on the rock, that you are, Lord, a stronghold to us. Strengthen our faith and help us, Lord, to always, Lord, realize that what we see, Lord, with this world and all the evil is coming to an end. And if there be any here who know not Christ as Lord and Savior, may they turn from their sins and turn to Christ and Him alone for salvation. In His name I pray. Amen.